Before we begin the message, I've been asked by Paul to make a few comments regarding the extraordinary events of this past week. And, of course, I'm talking about this past Tuesday where a black man named Alton Sterling was shot during a confrontation with two police officers outside of Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And then the day later, on Wednesday, a Minnesota police officer fatally shot a man named Philando Castile. In his car with him was his girlfriend and her four-year-old daughter in the back seat. These are only the most recent incidents. These are certainly not the only incidents. And then on Friday in Dallas... A sniper ambushed and killed five different police officers and wounded another seven. I don't think I'm being overdramatic in saying that the complexities of race are now polarizing our country in an entirely new way. And I think it also needs to be said that the church cannot be passive, we cannot be idle, we cannot be irrelevant in the face of this kind of trauma. And if you're wondering what that means, I think it means first that we grieve what is happening. We grieve, we lament what is happening. Black men are dying Police are dying. People are confused. They're afraid. And by the way, to say that the church needs to grieve, that doesn't assign blame. That doesn't purport culpability in any particular direction. It just recognizes that this is having a profound effect on people that are loved by God. And so this week, when you see a police officer... Maybe you have an African-American friend. Tell them how sad you are for their loss. Tell them that we as a local church are praying for them. I think it also means trying to understand the tensions that exist. See, we live in a day when the word police means something completely different for an African-American than it does for a white person. To a white man, police is a noun. Police are the men and women that are appointed to uphold justice and to protect us. To a black man, police is a verb, as in we have been policed, we are being policed, we will be policed. It doesn't mean protection. It means the potential for injustice. And I'm not asking you whether you agree with that this morning. That's not the point that I'm trying to make. The point is that we need to understand it or else we will miss an undercurrent that is existing. See, the average white American... Well, let me say it this way. When an African American is shot, a a white man is going to say, you know, there's got to be some kind of logic to this. But when 
Another African-American, when an African-American hears that an African-American is shot, he thinks, oh God, it's happening again. And if we don't get that, if we don't understand that, then we're missing a, a huge undercurrent that is taking place right now in these events. We're missing and misunderstanding the tension. I think another thing that we've got to be aware of is just the influence of the media, and we must discern the media's influence because there is a bias. And when I say bias, I'm not talking about the predictable conservatism of Fox News or the liberal slant of MSNBC. The bias is the drive to make money by bending stories to increase viewership and to boost Nelson ratings. And so you can be certain that if there is an angle or a way to sensationalize a story, the media is going to grab it. And by the way, that is not in any way to minimize the seriousness and the reality of what has taken place. You know, African Americans have been told for decades that their understanding of their problems are exaggerated, and that's, you know, that's been the lever of control that has pulled to postpone change, to, to, to force people to avoid change. But, but I, I guess what I'm appealing for is just that we suspend impulsive judgments, that we suspend impulsive judgments based upon the first things we hear, and that we recognize that that can be more difficult for some than others. And I think the last thing I, I want to say, and the last thing that I think is important is just the need for us to pray. And, and this is not the obligatory point on prayer that has to be thrown out anytime you, you talk about something like this. These events that are unfolding reveal a deep and profound fault line that exists right underneath our national unity, and yet it penetrates all the way down to the human soul. And, and yes, of course, the problem is societal, but it also flows directly from the human heart and can be addressed ultimately by the ruler of all human hearts. And I believe it does have a, a spiritual component that we must recognize. There is a spiritual battle. And I think about Ephesians 6, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil. And I guess what I'm trying to say is that there, there are some wounds that are so deep that the only remedy that's going to really begin to help is the surgery that can come through prayer. And so I think we must pray. We must pray together. We must pray individually. We must appeal to the divine warrior in heaven to wage war and deliver all people from evil, to protect African Americans, to protect the police as well, to pray that God would exalt his name and his word as we, as a local church, seek to respond wisely and carefully, yet passionately, to these events before us. And so I want to pray together. 
and I want to pray for a minute. Let, let me first direct us to the text before we pray. You can open your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 24. And just a quick reminder, particularly for our guests, we're in a series on, it's called Rhythms. Life is filled with rhythms. We work, we play, we rest. Uh, so the series is designed to look at what the Bible says about these different rhythms, particularly work and rest. And with that said, let's, let's just pause and let's, let's go to God in prayer. Father, we come to you today with heavy hearts. Lord, the killing of these, these black men, the killing of these police officers, they, it, it unites us together with a sense of grief, a sense of loss in in bewilderment, in confusion, and it makes us want to appeal to you to help our broken world, to heal our broken lives. And Lord, this morning, we're not looking to other people, we're not looking outside of ourselves, we're, we're looking in our own hearts, and, and we're frightened by what we see, because we see the indifference, we see the fear, we see ignorance. We see our own attempts to define ourselves by things outside of, of you. And we want to acknowledge this morning that we are utterly hopeless without your son and what he has accomplished for us. Lord, we pray this morning for those friends and family of those that have died, regardless of color or vocation those who are grieving. Lord, comfort them in their loss. And help us to know as a church what to do, what we can do, how we can be a force for good, for justice, how to be a voice of hope in these perplexing and puzzling times. And Lord, meet us today as we look together at your word and we seek to find you here this morning, today, together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Proverbs chapter 24, please. I'm going to read beginning in verse 30. Title of today's message is The Sluggard, Meeting My Inner Manana. Manana, of course, is the Spanish word, and I'm sure I'm butchering it in the way I, I pronounce it, which someone was kind enough to mention in the first service. It means tomorrow, though. Meeting my inner tomorrow. Eating my, meeting my inner manana. Verse 30 of chapter 24 of Proverbs. This is Solomon speaking. I passed by the field of a sluggard, by the vineyard of a man lacking sense. 
And behold, it was all overgrown with thorns. The ground was covered with nettles, and its stone wall was broken down. Then I saw and considered it. I looked and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. This is the portrait of a sluggard. And by the way, when was the last time you heard the word Sluggard. I mean, that's a word that hardly ever pops up in 2016. You never see sluggard online. You will never see sluggard in a Facebook profile. You know, husband, father, banker, sluggard. You'll never see that. Because that, this word is like, you know, we don't even know how to define it. Is it like, is it like a gathering of slugs? Is that a, a new iPhone app? You know, is that a character in the new Star Trek thing? Warp speed, Mr. Slug. You just don't know how to even think about this. And so if you're not familiar with this term, the word sluggard is a habitually lazy person. Or another way to say it, and here comes another dated phrase, a slothful person. Now, if I had to stuff all of that down into one word, the word would be manana. It would be manana because sloth is literally activity or inactivity that is excused by postponement. So you have inactivity, not doing anything, that we excuse, not by saying, I'm not going to do it, but by simply saying, manana, I'll do it tomorrow. It is the word, manana, that comes from the lips of somebody that is committed, that worships, that idolizes comfort and pleasure. And it is captured eloquently in the famous quote by Mark Twain, who once said, Do not put off till tomorrow what could be put off until the day after tomorrow just as well. And this manana man is precisely what we encounter in Proverbs chapter 24. So here we have in Proverbs Solomon, the great king, and he is seeking to train his son and his people in the ways of of wisdom. He's teaching them and us how to walk wisely in the world. In fact, and wisdom in Proverbs is basically viewed as walking the world with the why question. Walking the world with the why question. It's walking and processing, walking and perceiving, walking and listening, walking and instructing. So he says in verse 32, then I saw, then I considered, I looked, I received instruction. So he's going through life, evaluating, perceiving, discerning. And he comes upon the field of this farmer slash sluggard. Now again, in Proverbs, Proverbs is about the search for wisdom and and the experience of folly. 
in Proverbs, exhibit A for folly is the sluggard. So, so there's over 25 different, not just references, but sections in Proverbs that, where the sluggard is described. So Solomon, sitting with his son, Solomon before the people, he's trying to instruct them on this sluggard person. And he says, so I saw a field. I observed the field. He says, I perceived the fruit of the field. I discerned the lack of sense in the man who owned the field. And I want to pass along my conclusions to you. So basically, Solomon is saying, this is how to spot a sluggard. These are the marks of the manana man, if you want to see it within yourself or see it within somebody else. And there's three different marks that kind of emerge from the text, three marks of the sluggard. When looking at his field, we observe, number one, his absence. His absence. So Solomon strolls by the field this one day, and the first thing he notices, it's empty. The, the, the farmer is not there. There are no workers, no attention, no effort. And so what he sees is the absence of the rhythm that is established in creation that we talked about over the first couple of messages. Josh, Josh addressed these in the first couple of messages in this series. Where when the Bible opens up, we see God, and God is introduced to us not only as a creator, but as a worker. And work preceded rest for God. So God works over six days, and then he rests on the seventh one. But for the sluggard, there's a whole different arrangement in his mind and then in his life. Because for the sluggard, rest replaces work. Or rest comes before work. Or rest comes in the place of work. Proverbs 26 is a great chapter as well on, on sloth and sluggards. And he, Proverbs 26, verse 14 says, As a door turns on its hinges, so a sluggard turns on his bed. And so basically what that's saying is that the only work that a sluggard wants to do is that which is going to enhance his comfort. So, you know, we're laying in the bed and we're just laying there and all of a sudden we get a little uncomfortable. We think, oh, man, I got to, man, I got to shift this around because this is really uncomfortable. So I'm going to go ahead and summon the courage, summon the effort, some of the, summon the energy that I need to roll over. And so we just, we're going to roll over, we get comfortable. And, and, and so basically, you know, it's predictable. It's like a, a door that turns on its hinges. And I mean, who among us can't relate to this? I read this and I think, oh, wow. I mean, that, that was me, particularly as a teenager. I just remember finding a thousand cheats in, trying, in having to accomplish the things that my parents asked me to accomplish. So my dad would ask me to cut the grass. Okay, okay, I'll cut the grass but I had this strategic system in doing it where I could leave certain spots uncut because I knew if the sunlight shined a certain way, you wouldn't look like it was uncut, but it was cut. And then doing the basement, I knew if I could pile everything in this one closet, it was rarely opened, and so nobody would notice that. And, and I was in high school, a, and this is to my shame, but I was a habitual cheater. 
And the people that cheat on tests, I mean, we all did it for the same reason, and that is we were too lazy to work for the grade. It's just easier to coast. It's easier to use our time in the way where we can indulge ourselves and we can indulge our own pleasures. See, a sluggard's motive is ultimately, what's the minimum? It's manana, and what's the minimum? What's the minimum here? We come into a situation, what's the minimum? And he can just kind of roll away from work, roll to the other side away from work, just do the minimum so that I might be able to protect my comfort. So, so Solomon comes upon the field, and he looks on the run, and, and, and there's a complete absence of any workers in the field. And another facet of this absence goes something like this, and this may even be the more common one in the West, and that is that we rest after only a little bit of work, just a little bit of work. See, one of the things that distinguishes this, this whole section is that, that sloth is seen as the erosion of a thousand littles. I'm just going to do a little bit of this, a little bit of that. So he, he says, literally in 33, a little slumber, a little sleep, a little folding of hands to rest. You know, we speak to ourselves, hey, I've got to be a man of moderation. I mean, I can't be overworking. You know, I've got to do a little bit of work, and then I'll do a little bit of rest. And someone wants to find laziness as the habit of resting before you get tired. That's a great description. Before you get tired. Now, here's one of the main gets that I think we've got to draw from this. Our soul unravels when we flip the creation rhythm. You know, the rhythm that we see in creation where God works six days, rests, when we start toying with that, we start playing with that, it goes deep into our soul and it affects our soul. So instead of one day of rest, six days of work, we say, you know, that just seems like, like that just seems like so old school. And so I'm going to do like four days of rest and I'll do that up front and then I might work three days. You know, it's funny how we relate to the fourth command. Remember the Sabbath, keep it holy, and then it says, six days you shall work. Now, I'm not saying that you should immediately go to work on Saturdays now and then just take Sunday off. But I am saying that there's a, there's a pattern here that's established in creation that throws accents in certain places. And I think when we're apt to play with those rhythm rhythm or dispense with those rhythms, we become a soft and leisurely generation where every act of hard work entitles us to some kind of sympathy or some, something extra that we deserve because we're kind of going above and beyond what we expect for ourselves. You know, I was sitting at my desk on, on Friday and I was thinking about this and I, I had a, this memory of a quote that Spurgeon gave about his life. He was just describing an average week in his life, and I, I found it where Spurgeon said this once, Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, he once said, no one living knows the toil or, and care I have to bear. He said, I have to look after the orphanage, have charge over a church with 4,000 members, 
Sometimes there are marriages and burials to be undertaken. There is the weekly sermon to be revised. The sword and the trial to be edited. And besides all that, a weekly average of 500 letters to be answered. How's that for a job description? But then he says, this, however, is only half of my duties. For there are innumerable churches established by friends with the affairs of which I am closely connected to say nothing of the cases of difficulty which are constantly being referred to me. I guess what I'm taking away from all of that is simply to say that when you looked at Spurgeon's field, there was the evidence of his presence. There was the evidence of his attention. There was the evidence of his activity. Look at this sluggard's field, and you see his absence. That's point number one. Point number two is the condition. The condition of the field. So as Solomon is observing the field, he takes note of its condition. Verse 31. He says it was all overgrown with thorns. The ground was covered with nettles. And the stone wall was broken down. So the field in a word, is neglected. It's neglected. The weeds have overrun or overtaken the vines. The stone wall is broken down, which means it's unworked, it's unprotected. And and one way to look at this is it's not as if there is a complete absence of fruit there. Oh, there, there is fruit. The farmer has just chosen to cultivate a different kind of fruit. He's chosen to cultivate bad fruit through his resting rather than working. See, the lie behind laziness is that we can somehow flip the rhythm, that we can flip around rest and work, and it's not going to have any effect upon us, that that if we procrastinate, if we go into our manana motto and, and, and mentality, that somehow it's just going to be costless. But these rhythm swaps, these here where we replace work and rest or the sluggard replaces work and rest, these rhythm swaps are always costly. One of the things you want to keep in mind is that every good rhythm in Scripture, whether it's work or rest or play or recreation or sleep, every rhythm in Scripture can be corrupted. One of the distinguishing marks of the enemy is that he does not create something, he only corrupts it. So he takes that which God creates, and he works to corrupt it. And so he corrupts it by taking that which is good, and taking something that is, is good, like work or rest, and making it something that is the only thing we're focused on, or we elevates it beyond its proper place. And so work is certainly good. Workaholism is the corruption of that. Moderation is something good, Addiction is the corruption of that. Rest and relaxation is something good. Sloth is the corruption of that. And so what's happening here is that we're getting exposed to the enemy, one of the enemy's most diabolical schemes, which is that place where God is toppled in our life, not by the pursuit of evil, but in the overindulgence of something good. Because with sloth comes that repeated whisper in our mind. Just relax, just put it on, just 
deal with it manana. And we begin living by that manana motto, never do today what can be postponed until tomorrow. And the problem is ultimately that motto begins to corrupt. The motto, the motto's like, manana is like rust. It corrodes from within and eventually works its way out so that everything is corroded, so that eventually it ultimately pollutes the condition of the field. And so we wake up one day and we're getting, we're getting a bad performance review. We're thinking, where did that come from? I feel like I've been working hard and then all of a sudden, out of the blue, this bad performance review comes in. I don't know what that's all about. Or we lose our job and we're utterly stunned because we haven't been tracking all the things that have been said thus far. Or we can't, we look around at our field, at our family, at our home, at our, our job, we can't understand how it got that way. Or we have no friends because we just haven't been able to organize our life in such a way to make the room, to make the space, to create the margins where we can begin to throw time at other people. You know, my, my challenge right now is, is like the, the creep of television. Because, because there's so many good TV programs. And, and there's, it's so easy to justify them. And, because it's not like they're all immoral or, you know, there's some good things going on. And you can tell yourself, man, this is really good. This is informational. This could even be educational. This is, this is really interesting. But my challenge is, if I watch too much, I won't read. And if I don't read, I can't lead. And if I can't lead, then I lose my, my call to do the very thing that I think I exist for. That is to love my wife, to serve my children, and to preach the word of God. And so I guess the question I want to ask you this morning and invite you to ask is, is what would the wise man write if he was walking past your field this morning? What would be the parable? What would be the proverb that he would write if he was observing your job, your activity at home, teenagers, your room, bosses, your employees, and how you treat them. It's about the condition of the field and what it says about our work. So there's three marks that we're talking about. The first was his absence. The second was the condition. And now we come to the last one. And that is the financial consequences. The financial consequences of the field. Look at verse 34. Well, 33, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of hands to rest. And 34, poverty comes in like a robber and want like an armed man. So we have the unwanted arrival of these guests called poverty and want. You know, the mistake is to believe the procrastination and folding your hands, doing the whole manana thing, that it doesn't, it doesn't pay a wage. It does pay a wage. The wages of laziness are poverty and want. That's the wage. That's what you pay in order to achieve the comfort that you or I desire. And there's a kind of twisted logic that, that lies behind the manana mentality. And that has kind of two effects. It's two expressions. It's first is the 
there's an excused laziness. There's always excuses for the laziness. Proverbs chapter 26, again, verse 13. The sluggard says, there's a lion in the road. There's a lion in the street. So, in other words, there's always these reasons why the sluggard can't actually do what they said they would do or fulfill our commitments or go to work. And, and sometimes it can get pretty crazy. Sometimes it can get pretty exaggerated. And the sluggard is even aware of how bizarre his or her reasons can sound to somebody who, say, works regularly and has to get up and go out into the street and sees no lions there. And they actually begin to believe, can we convince ourselves that we're risking something big by going off to work, that we're going to miss something or we're going to put ourselves at risk because there's something like a lion out there. So we do nothing you always have to keep in mind that sloth isn't just about what we lose. It's about what we fail to gain. And so our kids are maybe not trained. We're not doing family devotion. There's never any time to do anything to sit down with them with the Bible, you know. Or relationships remain uncultivated. Or, or we, we have no satisfaction from serving other people because there just isn't the margin. Or we go into a trial and we find out we're completely alone and that we've built our life in such a way that there's no one praying, there's nobody I can talk to, there's nobody who's really aware of what's going on. But we excuse it because there's always this good reason. It excuses laziness. So that's one, one of the effects. And then the second effect is that, is that there's something about sloth that in order for it to protect itself... It creates a stubbornness within us. Again, Proverbs 26, verse 16. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. See, nobody is sprung from this. I mean, there's a sense where this touches all of us. If, if you're sitting here and you've just been thinking about that one woman you know or that one guy you know, and that your mind has been focused completely on them, you might be missing something from God this morning. Because sometimes we can mask our sloth by our busyness. Some of the most slothful people in the world are the most busy people in the world. They're just busy with all the wrong things. Frantically running around seeking to please everyone, not living out of priorities, not living out of a sense of what's valuable to God, and taking counsel from no one. You know, and there is a sense where that the seed of that exists within all of us, where we just don't necessarily want other people involved in our scheduling, in our life, in our priorities, because to seed that would be to seed control. And one of the main ways we feel like we're able to move forward is to just keep a tight rein on how we define ourselves and how we define our schedules tight rein over how we're perceived by other people and what we do. And the two effects that I'm talking about here, the excusing laziness and the creating stubbornness, is it's, it's, what, makes slu it's what makes sluggards particularly vulnerable to something like quick money. You know, get-rich schemes, gambling, drug supplying, um, investments that promise a huge return almost immediately, all those things that, that people know 
basically hasten poverty. They, they bring it to our doorstep because the slugger just wants easy money. He wants easy money. Because in order to have earned money, you get, he, ha, he or she has to change the rhythms of working. And that's viewed to be just too hard. So that, that third point is the financial consequences. Now, if you're anything like me, you know that that description in Proverbs chapter 24 touches down in your life in some way. And perhaps, like me, in, in different places. Because we are more similar to the sluggard than we are dissimilar to the sluggard. And so what I want to look at and what I want to draw hope from is, what does the gospel then say to this man or this woman? What does the gospel say to us, sluggards, to, to manana man? What does the gospel say to us. First, it's the good news that Jesus frees us from the ruts of sloth. Jesus frees us from the ruts of sloth. See, apart from Jesus Christ, we are born with desires that are, that are keyed to the world. They're synchronized to the world. They're synchronized to the corruption of the world. They're synchronized to the chaos of the world. Paul says, by nature, we are children of wrath. So by nature, there's, there's a part of us that just begins to unravel as we grow up and live life apart from Jesus. Disillusion, dissipation, is, drills all the way down into our very DNA. And, and, and we fear that sometimes, and so we seize control of our life, and we think that by seizing control over all things, we're actually protecting ourselves from this dissolution, from this unwrapping. But when Christ comes in and breaks into the life of a man or woman, and Christ is made real to them, he comes along with a new heart. And that new heart is filled with new desires, and those new desires reroute us from the direction of of unwrapping toward Jesus Christ, towards God and the things of God. It moves us towards Him. We, rather than kind of always going around and returning to the starting point and frustrated because we're not able to grow, we're not able to change, we're not able to do it ourselves, even by seizing control, we just don't seem to be able to make it in the direction that we're going in. God, God breaks in and gives us a new heart. If, any man is, if, if anything is passed away, behold, the new things have come. The, the new heart has come for any man who is in Christ. You know, I, I grew up in, in Pittsburgh, Close to, I, I, I lived about a stone's throw away from a very well-known amusement park in Pittsburgh called Kennywood. Anybody ever been to Kennywood? Okay, Kennywood. Kennywood had a ride called the Racer. And it was a, a ride where there were two tracks and you would step into what was the race car that had these predetermined wooden tracks where on both sides of the race car there was about two inches, and the wheels, rather than being on the bottom, were on the side of the cars, horizontal, because they would bump up against the side of the racetrack, and it's what would guide you forward. There was no accelerator, and there were no brakes. 
So you got into the racer, and you would race the person sitting next to you, but basically, you're going around this track, and you're, you're in this predetermined course, you're in this wooden rut, going in the same direction, always delivering you back to the very place you started. Now, I could get into the racer, and I could begin to scream, I'm free! I look at me, I'm free, I'm in a car, I'm making movement, I'm going forward, I'm in a, going in a direction... This is amazing. I can go anywhere I want. But the reality was, no, I'm in a rut. I have a little bit of room on both sides. I'm just progressing along the same path, and it's going to deliver me all around and right back to the starting point, right back to the place I was in. See, sin is like that. Sin puts us in a rut, Sin confines our will to a certain track and determines the course that we're going to run. We steer a little bit, but it's within this confined or defined course, but it always leads us back to the same place. It always leads us back to the very place that we started. And there's a sense where at times we wake, we, we realize that, even apart from Christ in these lucid moments, we, we, we realize that the thing that drives us nuts is the utter powerlessness we feel to change, this manana addiction that we have that we can't do anything about. I mean, Proverbs 13 says, the soul of a sluggard craves and gets nothing. And we get that. We just can't seem to be satisfied with even the forward movement we make. And so we need something from outside of ourselves. We need a Savior. And the good news that comes to us in the gospel is that because of Jesus, because of his death, we are given a new heart. If anyone is in Christ, the old has passed away. New things have come. We're given a, a new heart. And God implants in that new heart the ability to jump the rut, to break out of the rut and begin moving toward God. We're no longer confined by our sin on both sides. There's a, there's a power to jump and move towards God, and we're drawn by Jesus through the Holy Spirit. And so the good news for us this morning is that apart from Christ, yet yeah, things may be bad, but in Christ, because of the power that he gives us, we no longer need to live in the rut of laziness. We no longer need to live submitted to sloth, just circling around the same track, returning to the same starting point, because Jesus helps us jump the rut and makes himself the finish line. And it may be this morning that you're here, and I, I don't know, I don't know what that means to you. You know, maybe you're trying to manage an addiction without Jesus. And you are restless and disillusioned because you're trying to upgrade an old heart. You're trying to make an old heart do something that it's incapable of doing because that old heart is in the same track, running the same course, and is incapable of jumping the rut. And you need to recognize that Jesus is what helps you jump the rut. Jesus is what gives you the power to break free of sin and to move in the direction of God. So Jesus frees us from the ruts of sloth. That's the first point of how the gospel, what the gospel says to the sluggard. And then lastly, 
Jesus creates desires to work for God. Jesus creates desires then to work for God. And I want to go to a passage in Titus chapter 2 to, to look at this because Paul describes it for Titus this way. He talks about Jesus, quote, who gave us, who, I'm sorry, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So part of what this means is that the whole project that Jesus undertook was not simply about converting us. It wasn't simply about making Christians in different parts of the world and then God's going to back off because that's all he really intended. No, this is about God redeeming us and then as part of that also purifying for himself a people that are characterized this way. They are zealous for good work. And that doesn't just mean teaching in Sunday school and serving in children's ministry and going in outreach. That's talking about the work we do in the world. The work we do at work. See, part of the powerful work of redemption, part of the the, the effect of the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ is it isn't simply something that happened in history, but it began to reverse the curse that came through sin. So God is at work by the power of the Holy Spirit pushing back the effects of the curse. And that works out in our life each and every week as Christians. So redemption not only creates a new heart, but that new heart then has new desires. New desires that move us toward God, move us towards the things of God, that actually create what Paul calls zeal for good works. I mean, this for me was, this was a defining moment for me in realizing God is real. Because one of the biggest surprises in my conversion was the flipping of these desires. This guy, who, as I said earlier, I had a thousand cheats. I just wanted to, wanted to check out, take the easy way. What's the minimum? How can I avoid? There was this flipping where I went from wanting to cut corners to being zealous to grow, zealous to know Jesus, zealous to, 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 to be conformed to his image. In other words, Jesus started to ruin me for anything less than what he pleased for me. And and in a strange way, I began to desire what God wanted for me. I wanted for me what God wanted for me. And that synchronizing put me in a rhythm that that, that jumped the track and began to move me towards God. And that's the work that's most powerful. That's where the gospel makes the biggest difference. See, all of us have these hearts that are basically desire engines. They can never be shut off. Where daily we are motivated by what we love and by what we desire, far more than by what we think, far more than by our mind. We like to present ourselves and think about ourselves as if we're these cognitive human beings. One guy calls them brains on a stick. And basically, we think our way into the next step. We think our way into the future. But that's not the way Scripture provides. That's not what Scripture says about us. And you know what's interesting? Marketers understand this. The marketing world understands this reality about human beings, which is why they don't sell us on thinking deeply about their products. 
They, they tell us about how their products are going to satisfy certain desires that are really important to us. Starbucks is not trying to sell us on ideas. Starbucks is trying to tell us about how the good life that we want to live is going to flourish if we spend $5 on a cup of coffee. I mean, this past Friday, I, I read about the, the spin mellow. Think marshmallow, but it's a spin mellow. So it's, it's, a, uh, it's a, a skewer that you use for, marsh- for, for uh, toasting marshmallows. It rotates 92 times each minute so that the user doesn't have to go. I mean, this brings a tear to my eye in terms of just the technology and what it's going to do for humanity. The user does not have to go through the work and the effort and the hours that we waste in turning the stick that the marshmallow is stuck upon. Do you realize what this means for the future of man? But listen, listen, that's not merely an idea. That's a vision that we're being sold on through that product. Of a life that's flourishing based upon our own pleasure and our own comfort and our own ease. And what I want you to hear about that is that Jesus is redeeming our desires so that the rhythms of our life flow more and more towards Him. He's at work within our hearts, transforming us so that we're becoming like Him and the rhythms of our life are becoming more in sync with who He is. And it comes down to really small things. Really, I mean, because let's face it, most change in sloth is not getting rid of these huge bad things. That's not really where the battles lie. It's really about reining in those perfectly acceptable things that steal our time each and every day. Things like TV and internet or hobbies or the use of our evening and how... It's making space for that which is better than simply good. It's, it's making space to be able to have, you know, devotions with God every day. Because we say, I'm going to deny myself this in order to create space for that. And that brings us into alignment with the rhythms of God. See, the good news is that Jesus is at work doing it. I'm not saying go do this now. I mean, yeah, go do it. But Jesus is creating desires. Even now, in your heart, through the preached word, Jesus is creating desires in you. He's unleashing his Holy Spirit to empower us, to make us, to use the words of Paul, zealous for good works. And the Spirit does that. He works deeply within us by opposing our sinful sloth and then by manufacturing these new desires that'll make us zealous for good, that'll make us want to please God. And it's by the power of His Spirit that we're able then to defeat these slothful passions that want to rob us like an armed man. And the good news this morning or today is that you can call upon Him because you know what? God loves you. And there's nothing that God loves more than taking sluggards, slothful passions, and transforming them into people of whom it would be said on the last day, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into my rest. That's what the gospel does. And that's why Jesus makes all the difference. Let's pray.